Well, a couple of questions for you to begin this morning. Um, why is it that Jesus is so unpopular? You know, why is it that uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are inevitably really in the minority, except on sort of really rare occasions? Why is that? Why is it that when we try and share the message of Jesus with our friends and family, it's more often than not received with sort of either you know, polite indifference or just outright rejection? Why is that? Why is it that even following Jesus is just such a rare thing? They're the sort of questions we're thinking about today as we read Matthew 13 together. As OB said, it's the last of our series through Matthew 11. We've seen some, 11 to 13, sorry. We've seen some really marvellous truths about Jesus. We've seen some marvellous truths about him being the king of the kingdom of heaven along the way. We've seen that he's a fantastic king. But how come more people don't see it like that? How come we don't see it like that sometime? We're going to think about that. Make sure your Bible's open at Matthew 13. That'll be helpful. And uh, there is the outline with uh, sort of a mud map of where we're going in the talk. I'm going to pray and ask for God to help us as we read his word together. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, we could gather like this around your word and have you speak to us personally and powerfully right now. We thank you for that privilege and Father we pray that we'd uh, appreciate it and use it wisely. Father we want to be people who hear. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. Point one on your outline. Let me start uh, verse one of chapter 13. That same day we read, Jesus went out of the house, sat by the lake Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. See if you can imagine it a bit. It's a great scene. Uh, The lake, the Sea of Galilee, okay, pretty spectacular. Jesus sitting by the shore and then all of these crowds of people come walking down to be with Jesus, to check Jesus out, stacks of them. And so if you're watching from another point, it's a success story, isn't it? It's a success story. Any, any leader needs followers to be successful. And so we are used to, in our day, aren't we? We're used to leaders doing whatever it takes, really, to achieve popularity. Um, in our political leadership sort of scheme, success in political leadership is measured by how popular, popular you are in the polls. Most popular, you're a successful politi- political leader. And so this scene here, Jesus seems to be ranking pretty well. In fact, there are such large crowds coming down, okay, to be with Jesus by the side of the lake. There are such large crowds that Jesus has to get into a boat, a fishing boat, I presume, um, and he has to have the boat pushed out from shore just a little, almost like a stage, and then all the crowds have gathered and they're standing by the shore to listen to him. Pretty amazing. All seems a bit of a success story, really. Although it doesn't seem to gel entirely with what we've been seeing along the chapters leading up to this, does it? I mean, even last time, back in chapter 12, Jesus described his generation as wicked and adulterous. A bit earlier, remember, in chapter 11, Jesus described them as whining children who were whinging that Jesus didn't live up to their expectations as the king of the kingdom of heaven. And you hear in chapter 13, the crowds gather, gather around him. So many crowds, he's in a boat, he's facing them. And Jesus teaches them. Jesus, the king, tells the crowd a story of the kingdom. And you can see it there in verse 3. 
He begins, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And it's a good story. And we've heard it told to the children. It's a simple and a memorable story. It's the farmer um, with the seed and he scatters the seed and the seed falls on four different types of soil, a pathway, shallow rocky places among the thorns and then in the good soil. And of course, of all the four soils, it's only the good soil that produces uh, the good crop. And so, you know, as we saw, the seeds on the pathway taken by the birds immediately. Seeds among the rocks, they grow up a bit, but then they perish under the sun. The seeds among the thorns, they grow up, but then the thorns grow up among them and choke the life out of them. You'd have to say he doesn't seem to be much of a farmer, really. Not much return on his seed investment there. But there's the story. Simple, memorable. But if you take, if you take a step back from the story, it's a little strange as well, I think. See, Jesus has all these crowds coming to him. He gets the chance to teach them and he tells this story about a farmer. It's a bit strange. Matthew describes the story as a parable. In fact, if you look carefully at verse 3, Matthew tells us that Jesus told the crowds many things in parables, a story with a point or a purpose, almost like a bit of a riddle. And it's why Jesus ends the story the parable, the riddle, with these confronting words. Can you see it in verse 9? He ends the story by saying, He who has ears, let him hear. Clearly the story matters. It was clearly more than an interesting story about a farmer who needs perhaps to improve his scattering technique. But it's a strange story. And obviously the disciples were wondering similar questions. And what they discovered was that this parable was in fact a story of judgment and salvation. Verse 10. Point to on your outline in verse 10. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. That's a hard reply, isn't it? If you read it carefully, that's a hard reply. I reckon lots of people would have expected Jesus to answer the disciples' question, uh, the disciples with an answer, something like this. Well, I like to use stories to help people understand the truth. I like to use stories because I like people to use their imagination. I find it helpful. I wouldn't want them to get bored as I was speaking. I like using those sort of stories. You know, the parables are like an educational tool just to help people. I think that's the sort of reasons, you know, that people think that Jesus had for telling these parables, these riddles. But that's not what he said, is it? See, according to Jesus, those verses 10, 11 and 12, according to Jesus, he told parables as a sort of a filter. Parables sorted out who were genuinely part of his kingdom from those who were not. The disciples had had the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom given to them, but those secrets had not been given to the crowds. In fact, the parables enforced what was already true. See in verse 12, whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. That's a hard answer. And maybe the expressions on the disciples' faces were showing what a hard answer that was because Jesus goes on to back up what he was saying and he does so with a large quote, a long quote, from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, um, from Isaiah chapter 6. Have a look at verse 13 with me. Verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. 
In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 6. It's a really important chapter in the really important book of Isaiah. And if you've been here over the last few weeks, you might be thinking, hang on, Isaiah's been quoted a few times in Matthew so far, and that's true. And Isaiah 6, which, which you can read for yourself later, Isaiah 6 is only a short chapter, but it describes how Isaiah became a prophet and what his ministry would be like. Um, but basically, Isaiah is told to go and preach the message of the kingdom of God to the people of Judah, his people. But Isaiah is told right from the start that because the hearts of the people were so hardened against God, because they were so rebellious and arrogant, he would preach, but they would hear, but never understand. They would see, but they would never perceive. And in fact, the more Isaiah would preach the message, the harder their hearts would become. That sounds like a strange ministry, doesn't it? Not much of a job description for a preacher, that one. Rejection and judgment. That's all back in Isaiah chapter 6, okay? Now we come forward in time to our passage, Matthew 13. See in verse 14 what Jesus says. He says, in them, in the people, in the crowds, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. Keep reading with me. You'll be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Why does Jesus teach in parables? Because the people of his generation were as hard-hearted as the generation of Isaiah some 700 years earlier. In them, Jesus says, in the crowds, my generation, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. Jesus takes the description, okay, of the people of Isaiah's day way back then, and uses it on his own. Calloused hearts, he says. Blind eyes. Deaf ears. Calloused and blind and deaf to the truth, the fantastic truth, that Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus, just like Isaiah before him, knows that his message will be rejected, that his stories, in a sense, will be stories of rejection for people too blind, too deaf to accept the truth. They sifted out his listeners. To the hard-hearted and to the arrogant, Jesus' stories were simply stories. And their failure to understand the stories, their failure to pursue the meaning of the stories, just further hardened their hearts and added to their condemnation. Because you know what? Jesus does not want crowds. Jesus does not want crowds. He wants disciples. And what looked like a success story by the shore of the lake, you know, great crowds, massive crowds. That wasn't a success story according to Jesus. That was a tragedy. Because Jesus doesn't want crowds. He wants disciples. He doesn't want fans. He wants serious followers. He doesn't want hanger-ons. He wants people to hear his word and in hearing it, obey it. And so in verse 9, Jesus says, He who has ears, let him hear. Really hear. And of course, some did. Some did hear. And to them was revealed the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Point three on your outline in verse 16. Let's check it out. Verse 16. Jesus still speaking. He says to the disciples, But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth. Many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see, but did not see it, 
and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. You know, it's just like we saw last time if you were here with us. The disciples had responded to the message of Jesus rightly. If you glance back at the end of chapter 12, the last little paragraph of chapter 12, remember how Jesus described his disciples there? It was wonderful. Remember, he said, this is my family. My brother, my sister, my mother, my family. Why? Because they heard his message and they believed it. And you know what, folks? The right response to the word of God is always like that. It is always to be trusted and obeyed. To rightly hear the word of God is to recognize that you can no longer keep living your own way, but that you must submit to the Lord's better way. It's called repentance in the Bible. It's a turning around. It's a changing of direction, your life's direction. It's a changing of loyalties. That is the right response to the message of Jesus. And you see Jesus' disciples, they were examples of the few. The few from among the Jews of Jesus' day that recognized Jesus as the Messiah, their Christ, their king. They were the ones that by God's grace had trembled at the message of the kingdom that Jesus had delivered, had humbled themselves before it, had repented and had believed that Jesus was the king of the kingdom of heaven. But they are few. And you know what? Even though Jesus had been surrounded by crowds, he knows that his followers will be few. And he wants his disciples to understand that too. And so away from the crowds, okay, away from the crowds, Jesus goes on to explain the meaning of the parables to them. And they are story, it is a story of pictures, pictures of both rejection, mainly, and salvation. Pictures of people's response to the message of the kingdom, to the message about him as the king of that kingdom. Point four and verse 18. Jesus said, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed sown among the path. The seed in the story represents the message of the kingdom, the message of Jesus as its king, the message to repent and believe in Jesus as king, the message to hear the word of the king and to obey it. That's the seed. And in the first picture of Jesus' story, the seed fell on the path, remember? And the birds came and swooped and they took it away. It's the picture, Jesus says, of someone hearing the message but not hearing it, not understanding it, not appreciating it, snatched away by the evil one, and Jesus is rejected as the king. The seed lands on the path. It's swept up and taken away. And you know what, folks? It is exactly the response that we have seen in Matthew's biography of Jesus. It's the same response exactly as that of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. The ones who have been quietly plotting Jesus' execution, remember, from back in chapter 12 and verse 14. They heard the message, but they did not hear it at all. They rejected it outright. They reject Jesus outright as the king of the kingdom of heaven. They plot his death. The next two pictures, too, are pictures of rejection. Verse 20, verse 20. Jesus says, the one who received the seed that fell on rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. And when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. This is the enthusiastic hearer, okay? 
at least at first. But when the rubber hits the road, when it starts to cost too much, when trouble comes, the message is forgotten, the kingdom is forgotten, the king is forgotten. And trouble and persecution will certainly come upon Jesus in just a few chapters' time with his arrest and his being charged and his execution. And the crowds by the lake here in in chapter 13, over there they'll be nowhere to be seen. The only crowds there will be the ones calling out, crucify him, like seeds that had shot out just shallow roots with the dry heat of trouble and hardship, the message withers away. With the third picture, the result's the same, verse 22. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. You know what, just a couple of pages later in the Bible, in chapter 19 of Matthew, a young man with great wealth will approach Jesus, wanting to enter the kingdom. But he, went, he goes away from Jesus at the end of a conversation, sad, because he valued his wealth more highly than he valued Jesus. Couldn't follow Jesus. His wealth deceived him, you see. The worries of life, that perhaps he thought his wealth could, he, could uh, save him from his trouble, caused him to reject Jesus. And Jesus at that time, chapter 19 of Matthew, turns to his disciples and says, I tell you the truth, you know, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Three stories of rejection. Three stories of hard-hearted responses to Jesus that bring judgment on the people that reject Jesus. But of course there's a fourth story. A story of salvation. Verse 23. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160, 30 times what was sown. Received the seed. Hears the word. Understands it. Receives it with humility and obedience. And from that seed a crop is produced. An abundant crop. In other words, salvation, okay? Life. Life to the full. Life forever. For as we've seen in these chapters that we've been looking at over these weeks, to receive the message of the kingdom, to receive the king of the kingdom, is to receive rest. Rest for our souls. Remember the call and the command of the king back in chapter 11? We've looked at it a couple of times, but it's wonderful. Let me read it again. Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's the rest of forgiveness from our sins. It's the rest of being restored as a child of God. It's the rest of enjoying peace with God that begins now and will continue into eternity. It's the rest of a fresh start with God in his kingdom, with Jesus as our king. And you know what? Although the opposition to Jesus and the rejection of Jesus and the hard-hearted response to Jesus, although all of that sort of welled up and climaxed and led to his execution, in the sovereign grace of God, it was exactly in Jesus' execution, in his crucifixion, that our rest was won. As the punishment for our sins fell on him, as the innocent one bore the guilt of the many. The people's rejection of Jesus, though tragic and wrong and evil, 
was in fact the very means by which God saved a people. A small people, a remnant, who received the seed of the message of the kingdom, who heard it and understood it and trusted it and obeyed it. Incredible. Wonderful. And you know what, folks? That message of the kingdom and that message of the king, it continues to be shared. And the same responses that Jesus described of his generation can still be seen today. The majority rejection of the king and his kingdom, the minority reception of the king and his kingdom, it's still seen today, isn't it? And so as the message of Jesus and his kingdom is shared, many people reject it outright. Some some respond with joy but quickly drop away. Others hang in there until their devotion is found wanting and some, some, enjoy life and rest and peace. And you know, as we in DPC across our four churches, as we seek to reach out to our city with the message of the king and his kingdom, it's sobering, it's sobering that perhaps we should expect more rejection than acceptance. It should certainly drive us to pray. For it is the Father who reveals the truth of his kingdom to those who would humble themselves before him. And so we must pray. And we must not become too easily discouraged with rejection. Because it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon. It's not surprising. But you know what? Having said that, if our friend or our colleague or a member of our family rejects the message once, please don't consign them to being, oh, they must be the the seed on the path. And give up. Because that would be pushing the parable too far and too hard. Don't give up. We need to refresh ourselves with those stories of people praying for their friend and sharing the gospel with their friend over many, many years until finally one day they respond with humility and repentance. Don't make the parable work too hard. I was reading the latest issue of uh, The Briefing, which is a fantastic magazine that I'd commend to you. It came this week. And I had to go to the doctor and had some time and I spent the whole time reading it because they were running so late. What a surprise. And there's a new column in The Briefing called uh, Jars of Clay. It was fantastic. It features stories about people trying to share the message of Jesus. And in this article, a woman by the name of uh, Karen reminisces about a 12-month period in which She worked really, really hard to try and introduce her friends to God. It's a great little article and it describes the ups and downs of what happened from great enthusiasm among her friends to rejection and just complicated circumstances and just a sort of a withering of stuff and no obvious fruits for her efforts. And so she concludes her column like this. I'm quoting from Karen. She says, Even so, I praise God. I praise him for the time we were able to spend talking about the gospel the things that were said, the opportunities he gave us to challenge our non-Christian friends, but I'm sad that the people I love so much are still travelling on the road to hell. Since then, I've suggested that we study the Bible together, but nothing has come of it. We've continued to meet socially for dinners and movies, the emails continue to fly, and occasionally I'll invite them to some evangelistic event, and sometimes they'll even come. But things have stayed much the same. The gospel has not yet penetrated their hearts. Maybe one day God will have mercy on them. Until then, I keep them in my prayers. See, folks, that's what it's like a lot of the time. And so we hang in there. We don't give up. We keep sharing. We keep praying. 
But of course, you know, as well as thinking about what the ongoing implication of Jesus' story is out there, we need to think about it in here as well, don't we? For you see, it would be very possible to divide even every one of us in this room this morning into one of those four pictures in Jesus' story. That would be helpful to do that because the stakes are high. Sort of, we're not going to do it, but you know, we could almost divide everyone in this room into one of those four pictures. Be a helpful thing to do because the stakes are so high. Eternal life. Rest for your soul. Forgiveness of sins. Being in the kingdom of God and not outside of it. You can't get any higher stakes than those. So I just wonder, in your own mind, if you had the chance to place yourself in one of the four pictures of Jesus, I wonder which one you would choose, honestly. Perhaps not the one you want to be, but the one that you are. Maybe you are the straight-out rejecter. Maybe you're only here today under sufferance. You know, you're here trying to please someone and you've been wondering for a little while why you said yes. Can I just gently suggest, okay, that you at least ponder the reason for your rejection of Jesus? Because you see, if you don't believe that Jesus is the king, what do you believe about him instead and why do you believe that? Because let me tell you, nobody believes nothing. We just believe different things. And I think Australians, including myself, tend to be lazy and we tend just to say, oh, I just don't believe that. But that's not the full sentence, is it? The full sentence is, oh, I don't believe that because instead I believe this. But we need to consider what this is. If you don't believe that Jesus is the king, it's because you believe something else about him. And I'm just gently suggesting that you at least identify what that something is and what reasons you have for believing that and whether they're worth it. Whether you can be very confident about that. It's just too lame, okay, to simply say, oh, I don't believe in Jesus. As if that's the end of it. The stakes are too high for that. It's too important. I have reasons. I personally have reasons for believing that Jesus is the king Reasons that I need to keep revisiting and revising and reconfirming. I'm just asking, do you have reasons for rejecting Jesus as the king and are they any good? Or maybe you are struggling at present with trouble and hardship and you're wondering whether Jesus' way really is the best way. And maybe you're looking for a shortcut to simply ease the pain. And that's very tempting, isn't it? We want life to work out and there's nothing really wrong with that. We want there to be less pain and there's nothing wrong with that. But can I just gently warn you that there are a lot of counterfeits out there promising much and delivering nothing. And when Jesus promises rest, he doesn't promise a shortcut. He's not promising instant happiness. For he knows, he's honest, he knows that there is much that is wrong with this world and we are still caught up in it. But he is promising joy. The sort of joy, okay, that you can experience even in the midst of tears. He is promising contentment and peace. But, see, these are deep things, aren't they? These are things for the long haul. These are things that stretch out into eternity. But they're real. They're real. And there are a lot of fakes 
fake philosophies, fake promises, fake saviours, and I'm just saying don't fall for second best, will you? When life is hard, and so often it is, that's often when we make our dumbest decisions. Don't pull back from Jesus. He knows more hardship than you will ever experience in a million lifetimes. And he promises his help and his refuge and his safety. So don't pull back. Or maybe you see yourself in the third picture of Jesus' story. Well, I've got to say that most likely if you are the third picture, you won't spot yourself because that's what makes it so scary. Because the person in the third picture, remember the thorns? He's surrounded by those thorns and weeds. Which, remember what Jesus said they are? They are the deceitfulness of wealth and the worries of life. This is the person, okay, that you have a confidence that a bigger house will solve your worries. The new car, the better salary will make it all right. If you look back over your time, you'll see that gradually you've poured less and less of your energy into kingdom of heaven projects and more and more into lesser things like your career or your financial portfolio or your fitness program or your children's education or your electronic gadgets. And you were enthusiastic about Jesus as a teenager or at uni maybe, but now you've slowed down. You're just a bit less zealous, more careful. But you know what? Without some serious spiritual roundup applied to the weeds growing up all around you, the message of the kingdom and your loyalty to the king and your place in the kingdom is being slowly choked out of you. And the time to act is now, says Jesus. To repent, to hear, to really hear, and to come back to Jesus in humility and loyalty and devotion. Because you know what, friends? We want to be like the seed sown on the good soil, don't we? We want to hear the word. We want to hear the message of the kingdom. We want to hear the word of the king. We want to understand it. We want to trust it. We want to obey it. We want that harvest, that crop. We want life. We want salvation. We want to be the ones that Jesus would say, here's my family. We want to enjoy his rest. We don't want to be part of the crowds. We want to be part of the kingdom. Not fans, but followers. Serious, loyal, devoted servants of the king of the kingdom of heaven, Christ Jesus himself. And so, folks, you know what? The person who has ears to hear, let them hear.